Hi, this is Jeff Gerber. I'm a comic book lawyer, and you're listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Polly. Blowing Kirkman. <laughs> yes, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, that was uh, that was uh, last week's show, in which uh, we we appreciated Robert Kirkman quite a bit. So, <laughs> thus the title. All right. I, I didn't know if it was critical or uh, an homage. No, it was an homage, and it got it got so ridiculous that we decided that we had to name it such. Yeah, yeah. So. I can I can see how it could go that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Uh, Paul and I are excited to have you here. I think it's important for me to say right off the bat, everything I ever learned about the law and lawyers, I learned from television, which I think is pretty accurate. I think you'd have to agree. So that said, Jeff, are you more of an Arnie Becker or a Denny Crane? And Arnie Becker, you're taking me back to L.A. law, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> and who was the other one? Denny Crane. Oh, I don't know. Who is that? <laughs> He's uh, in Boston Legal. William Shatner's. Oh, case. yeah. Uh, I haven't watched. I don't know that I ever watched Boston Boston Legal. Okay, so um, I watched the practice. I, I I really hope I'm not an Arnie Becker. So I don't know what that <laughs> that makes me a Danny Crane. I I don't. Is that the James Spader character? No, uh, William Shatner's character. William Shatner's character. Yeah. Well, um, given that I that I work. Uh, in a legal geek medium, I without knowing what his character is like, I assume I'm more like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So, you know, along the lines of television law, which, again, I think you have to admit is pretty accurate representation of, uh, uh, of the law. <laughs> exactly how much sex are you having in your law office every day? I hope none. The only <laughs> guy in my office uh, just, just doesn't do it for me. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, well, uh, so hopefully all the sex is going on outside the office. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we, we just started up a new firm. I was in, I was in a large law firm, and, and we moved uh, – uh, my, my law partner and I um, just started our own office. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a brand-new deal for us, and, and we you know, kind of work in one big room in a collaborative effort on these things. And uh, so uh, it, it's it's not it's not the sexy glamorous life you would uh, you would think it would be. So there's not a whole bunch of you guys going out on the roof at night and smoking cigars or anything like that. You know, we got to start doing that. <laughs> uh, we, we we did manage to move into some pretty glamorous space. Now it's called and, the the, uh, the brick house or something like that. Well, uh, it it is a big brick building. Okay. Uh, we're, we're the Brickhouse Law Group. There you go. Uh, but uh, we moved into uh, some converted loft space behind a uh, kind of a wine country bistro restaurant in uh, an area of St. Louis called Lafayette Square. Mm-hmm. So if I if I want to go see the glamorous people, I go to the company cafeteria, which is the front half of the building. <laughs> and and I guess in that regard. We've got a little, a little bit of an Ally McBeal vibe going on. There you go. There you go. See, you're already kind of creating your setting for the TV drama that will be your law firm. Yeah. See, it's all very television. I told you, Paul, it all comes back to that. It is. It, the Brick House sounds like a great name for a TV show. It does. It does. It so, a, I was a little intimidated when you first started started saying that everything you know about the law, you, you learned from TV because I had uh, – one of the presentations I did uh, at a con a year ago was everything I learned about the law I learned from comic books. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it, does your law firm specialize in IP law? We do. That's, uh, that's probably about half of what we do. We do intellectual property litigation, and, uh, and certainly a chunk of that is comic book law. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we also do a mix of complex commercial litigation. I have an appellate practice as well. And it was it was the law that sucked me back into comic books, and it's probably comic books that keeps me interested in the law. So, so it's a pretty good relationship. So, would you characterize yourself as a comic book fan then? I am now, but uh, and and I I liked them when I was growing up, but didn't have a a shop to walk to. You know, the one, the comics I got were uh, once every six months when I go to the dentist. <laughs> uh, we had a box at the end. If you survived the dentist visit, you could go dig in and, and take what toys and things you wanted. And there were always some comics in there. And that's how I would get my comics. And by the time I went back, they would be just for the next dentist visit, they would just be shreds. Yeah. Just, you know, little bitty strips of paper. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I, I think you go through a period of time. Uh, well, not everybody. Some people see the light early on. Where you uh, where you go kind of more mainstream and and uh, and a period where you think maybe you're less geeky, and uh, you know I was really kind of out of popular culture for a while, and maybe that makes me more of a geek. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, I was really out of popular culture, and then comics kind of brought me back into it right around the time that my my boys started getting old enough to be interested in it. And and one thing kind of reinforced the other. So now, you know, chasing my kids around and, and keeping up with them and my wife, I don't have as much time as I would like to sure. uh, to go and, and cruise the shop all the time. But uh, but every once in a while, um, usually once a month, uh, I'll, I'll bundle up some of the boys and make the excuse that I've got to go to the comic book shop for work. <laughs> See, and that's got to be great, you know, that you can sit there and and uh, you know read your comic and know that you're engaged in important legal research. Well, I, I'll tell you, it, it is fantastic to go into work <laughs> and have to spend eight hours reading comics. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, you can't complain. No, no. How old are your boys? Uh, my youngest is nine. Mm-hmm. And my oldest is 18. He's actually a, oh, wow. a plebe at West Point right now. Wow, a big nine-year difference there. Yeah, and I, well, I have one in between, oh, right wow. smack in the middle. Wow. And are, do they enjoy comics? They do. The uh, The middle one thinks he wants to be a, uh, a comic book editor mm-hmm. when, he, when he grows up. I'm not quite sure how he picked that job out of all of them. Yeah, yeah, that's not, that's not the 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 uh, the job that you hear people bandy out. It's either writer or artist. You never hear somebody say, "I want to be the editor or the uh, the letterer." <laughs> you know. Well, you know, with with that middle kid, I think a lot of it has to do with not really seeing what an editor does, and so not knowing how much hard work goes into it. Sure. Um, and he looks at it and he thinks, "Wow, that'd be really kind of cool." All I'd have to do is look at the art and read the pictures and say, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah, keep doing that. <laughs> so, uh, but he is, uh, you know, it, it's funny because uh, I was, when I was presented at a con about a year ago, um, he came with me to check it out. And after some of the presentations, we went by uh, some gaming tables mm-hmm. and he got sucked into uh, a role playing game. I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to. I haven't done that in years. Right. And we sit down. Now he is obsessed with role-playing games. Oh, what's he playing? Well, he's playing uh, – one of my clients is a, a small press group called uh, Black Pigeon Press. Uh-huh. And they have a a fantasy D20 uh, system that they created called Hacktastic. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, – you know, it's, it's evocative of uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and – fantasy role-playing games like that. It's a tabletop RPG, and he's just consumed by it. Right. And how long has he been into it? For a year. Wow. And uh, and it, it, it just sucks him in more and more and more. I think I'm going to lose him at some point in time. But that's <laughs> cool, because when I was growing up, I was consumed by Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, it's not only do I get to the go to the... Uh, the, the comic book shop for work on Saturday morning, Saturday nights. It's like, sorry, dear, I've uh, I've got to go over to the guy's house to game for work. 
<laughs> See, I just think that's terrific. You know, you, you get to kind of corral all of your, your geek nerdery in one place and actually, you know, involve it in what you do for a living. I think that's terrific. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of the dream job. It really uh, it, well, it sounds it. I mean, if I were talented, then <laughs> the dream job would, would actually be creating content. Um, instead, you know, I spend my time talking with folks about how to uh, how to protect their content that they create, how to protect their creations. Well, and that's important stuff. We all need that. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, there. There's been good and bad things about you know the booms and the busts in in comics. Mm-hmm. But one thing you've got to say about the flow of money in, into comics is that it has created opportunities for, I think, a transformation in the art. Uh, what, we, what we see today is a far cry, uh, far more, I think, it advanced, at least uh, graphically, than a lot of the stuff. I mean, you've you got to put it in context o- over the period of time and what people were doing back then. There were there were fantastic sequential artists who, who transformed the genre, but, uh, but the advancements that we've made in, in the art that's actually in these books is, is astounding. It's because, you know, guys could actually make a living at it instead of, uh, you know, for decades, uh, you know, scraping by. Mm -hmm. Now you were involved in the, uh, you, you represented Todd McFarlane in the Gaiman versus McFarlane case, right? Correct. Is that the correct? case is still going on. And that's what I was going to ask. I, that was at your old law firm. Are you still involved in that case? Uh, I I am to the extent that it's still going on. I see. Uh, it's it's kind of at a hiatus right now. And what's that? I I think the last time I uh, I read about the case, they they were I guess trying to figure out what the damages were or what the the uh, right. settlement was going to be or. What's the legal term I'm looking for here? Well, it in this particular case, it's an accounting. Okay. Um, it's it the legal term damages would would uh, would apply if it had been copyright infringement, but this ended up being over copyright ownership. I see. And so so it's an accounting to see how much profit was made off of the properties at issue and how to split that up. And for those who aren't familiar with with this case, could you kind of summarize it for us real quick? Sure. Uh, back in uh, the early days of Spawn, when uh, when Todd was just starting out, I mean, he started out with with quite a big hit, uh, the single largest sales for an independently produced single author artist uh, comic, and I think that record stands today. But that first year, he was also getting getting some knocks from the critics and from some fans. That while the art was great, maybe the storyline could be improved. And Todd's a pretty brilliant guy, and he came up with the idea that, well, I know my art's great. I, I like my story, and I like this story that we have here, but I, I hear the fans. I'll give them what they want. And so he went out to find four fantastic authors to each come in and guest write an issue. And, uh, and those authors were, were Dave Sim and Frank Miller mm-hmm. and Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman. And he paid each of them $100,000 to guest write an issue. And the dispute with Neil that rose later on, hasn't arisen with any of the other authors, was whether or not in the, in the deal that they struck, Neil retained his copyright rights in the, in the work that he produced. And so he ultimately he ended up suing for copyright ownership. And it was copyright ownership in Spawn Issue 9, and in that issue, for the first time, there appeared a an angel huntress who hunted these evil spawn, and her name was Angela. And Todd drew that issue, and Neil wrote it. And also in that issue, there was a uh, there was a hell spawn set in in apparently medieval times, in armor on a horse. Uh, he didn't have a name. And there was a, uh, a mis- mystical street bum named Nicholas Cagliostro. And uh, later on down the line, people recognized that character as uh, Cagliostro mm-hmm. or Cog. And so uh, Neil uh, sought ownership, and ultimately the court awarded him co-ownership of those three characters plus, uh, 
plus co-ownership of the issue and uh, and of a three-issue miniseries that, that uh, he had done with Todd's company as well. And that dispute then, uh, while there are still to be appeals over that, there's been one set of appeals already, uh, but while there are still to be some more appeals, in the meantime, we need to figure out how much profit was made from those characters and and how much of that profit Neil uh, should receive. Now, is it common in, you know, when you're when the writer or whoever is, you know, contracting with the publisher, is it common for them to sign over the entire rights? Or is it, you know, more of a situation that perhaps Neil Gaiman was in where they do sign to retain some portion of the rights? You know, when they're uh, it, creating a, something. Right. It's it's a difficult question to answer in exactly that way. Um, the the tradition in the comic book industry and the most common thing to have happen is for the publishing company to have all the rights and to own all the rights. Sure. Now, prior to prior to Neil's work with with uh, Todd, I think that the the evidence that uh, that was in the open court record uh, revealed that in Neil's previous interactions. He hadn't retained any any copyright rights, but he had an agreement for compensation that provided for uh, a share in royalties off of uh, off of future uses and licensed uses for certain copyright exploitation, whether it's a sequel, another issue, whether it is a, a character, and uh, and some of those some of those contracts are fairly complicated, and some are relatively simple. Mm-hmm. The some of the longest ongoing litigation that that I'm aware of. The in fact, the longest ongoing litigation that I'm aware of is over Superman, right? And Which is still going on. Still going on, yeah. and you know that's an example of what the what the comic industry has always been. And that is uh, the you know the publisher owning the rights and taking the rights from the artists and the authors. Now, sometimes those rights are transferred because they're signed over, as you were saying, mm-hmm. and sometimes those rights exist in the publisher because they employ the author and the artist, like work uh, for hire, and and then it's and then it's a work for hire, right? Um, and. Some of the there was a, a famous lawsuit, well, famous if you're a geek like me, <laughs> over that for uh, Marvel when Marvel was in bankruptcy and Marv Wolfman sued Marvel, right? Over among other characters, uh, Blade, mm-hmm. and and the court in that case said no, 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 that was a work made for hire. So the courts do make a distinction between you drawing a salary versus contract work. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the the copyright law itself does. Um, if you are if you create something that that creates a copyright, and for a copyright to exist, it's an original artistic expression fixed in a tangible form. Mm-hmm. So once you put pen to paper and create something, a copyright exists at that moment, and the copyright exists in the author. And the law does this weird thing where it says. If you are an employee and you did this in the course and scope of your employment, we're going to call it a work made for hire. You are not the author. Your employer is the author. Mm -hmm. And so the copyright exists with the employer. There's also a a series of, of different types of things where you can do work under contract. And if the contract specifically says that this is one of those types of things and it is a work made for hire, it is a commissioned work, then that too can be a work made for hire even if you are an independent contractor. But for for most things that are done under an independent contract, the the person that everybody in the world thinks of as the author is the author, mm-hmm. um, except for these few specially commissioned categories. So in the in the case of like Siegel versus what is it Warner Brothers now? Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think the current caption right now is Warner Brothers, um, uh, and that was because I, I can't remember if it's Warner Brothers or Time Warner off the top of my head. 
So if it's if it's you know Siegel versus Warner, whoever, I, I had always understood that the Siegels were work for hire. That you know when when Siegel and Schuster did their thing. So is the what does that case kind of spin on? It spins on a little bit of everything. Okay, this is actually it's at it's at least the fourth lawsuit in this in this series of lawsuits over this property. Um, and, and it, it covers work made for hire. It, uh, it, I mean, part, part of the issue was that in this particular lawsuit, there were assertions made that, uh, Superman was actually created by Siegel and Schuster prior to ever being hired by what is the, the precursor of DC. Right. Was that national so that at the time? they made it when they were not employed by anybody else, and then they shopped it around. Mm-hmm. And so there was a question of, of assigning the rights, and then later on they were employed. And so there's the question of what did they do while they were employed, and was it in the course and scope of their employment? Because there's the, – the Siegel lawsuit has the Superman lawsuit and a Superboy lawsuit. Right. And they're, they're two separate cases consolidated for purposes of of a lot of the activity in them. But in the Superboy lawsuit, Superboy was conceived by by Siegel and he pitched it with a treatment that he, he gave to his bosses and they passed it. They said, no, we're not going to do it. And the court, in trying to decide whether that was a workmate for hire, looked at the employment contract that Siegel had at the time which gave his employer the right of first refusal. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, they, they passed on that. And then while he was serving the military in World War II, they said, you know what? Uh, Superboy's just the kind of thing that, uh, that the American public needs. So we're going to go ahead and, uh, and have Joe Schuster draw this up and we're going to publish it. And so they published it without his permission while he was off off serving in the military. Right. And, uh, and so that was, that was very much a, was this a work made for hire dispute? But at its core, when you talk about the Superman character, it has to, a lot of it has to do with, uh, termination of an assignment of copyright as the copyright law existed prior to the copyright act in 1976. You, you broke your, your term of copyright up into time chunks. So you would have a period of years and it wasn't just the, the pre 1976, it would, you know, there was the 19, 1909 act and and, uh, earlier ones, but you would break your copyright up into, into chunks of time. And after a period of time, a window opened up where if you had assigned your work to somebody else, um, you could, provide them with notice of terminating that assignment and you could reclaim the copyright. Mm-hmm. And there's a very technical procedure to go through and there's a narrow window of opportunity in which to do this. And that's what uh, Jack Kirby's uh, family has done with several of the titles that he did for Marvel. Uh, right. And it's, it's the same attorneys who, uh, who were, who brought the suit on behalf, most recent suit on behalf of, of Siegel are, uh, are representing Kirby's estate. Wow. <laughs> wow. They've, they've got some big clients there. <laughs> uh, they certainly, well, I think, I think that the success that they've been having with the Superman stuff certainly helps. Wow. So uh, uh, here's something I've never quite understood is how does the court make the determination that the copyright can term and that it can revert back to whoever the, the author creator was? What, what's, what circumstance makes that happen? Am I asking the question correctly? I, well, I think kind of. Okay. The, 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 how the court makes the determination is the same way the court makes every other determination in law. A lawyer on one side is going to introduce a bunch of evidence and facts that show one set of facts occurred. A lawyer on the other side is going to introduce some that say a different set of facts occurred. Somebody's going to have to decide what the real story was, what facts actually occurred, and then apply the set of rules. And I think what you're, what you're asking is, you know, what rules determine? Yes. Uh, when when somebody can terminate this. Yes, sir. And I don't want to bail out on you, but I'd rather not 
do that one off the top of my head. Okay. Because the, at least in any specific detail, because it's a technical procedure and courts have repeatedly said, you got to be careful about going through this the right way, because if you don't go through it the right way, you lose your rights. And I'd hate for me to get a date wrong <laughs> or a time period wrong and uh, and have somebody rely on what I said and, sure. and lose their rights because I'm not out here. Blah, blah, blah. Dis- disclaimer. I'm not providing legal advice. Uh, don't <laughs> rely on any of this. Get your own counsel. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> sure. But uh, the, the, the law is set up with a, with a rule, and this only applies for works prior to the 1976 act. So like prior to 1978, the work had to have been created. If it was created after that, you don't have this, this, uh, this renewal termination issue. Oh, really? Um, there was a, there was a, a compromise that was made in the revision of the act and it's much simpler to, to, to get and to enforce your copyright under the new act but you don't have this this termination opportunity. The uh, the old termination opportunity was really an acknowledgement of the disparate bargaining power between a a publisher and a creator. That you know you create Superman, and all you want to do is get the thing published. Right. You know you want somebody to hire it, and you would you would do this work for a quarter a day. Mm-hmm. But you know, the publisher can get it for a quarter a day because you're so desperate to do it. Right. And they can control the terms and you give them the copyright. And then 30 years later, this is the biggest hit for any teenage kid in the United States. Plus all the dads who, uh, who are pretending not to be reading it. (laughs) Um, you know, they hide their comics inside their playboy. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and now, you know, the publisher has this incredibly valuable content that you created. So the idea was to to take back some of that disparate bargaining power and and give the creator an opportunity later on down the line to to essentially renegotiate mm-hmm. the the deal. Either they take it back and they go out and try to find somebody else to do it, or maybe they can renegotiate a deal where they get paid more approximately what the what the copyright is worth for the remaining term of the copyright. So, as a creator, you know, like for a company like an image comics company that, you know, does this creator-owned material, does it make sense for new creators to get their stuff copywritten, get their stories copywritten before they start submitting it to comic companies to avoid a situation well, there were, like there were, that? There were a couple questions in there. And first of all, I've represented Image, so when you say a company like Image, I'll say Image. Uh, Let's say IDW then. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, mean, I, I don't theater owned, but um, Image also uh, also publishes uh, works by other creators where they retain their copyrights. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so Image is kind of a complex beast, and the way that they do business. I think really changed the way the way comics do business today. I mean, some of the contracts that that uh, DC and Marvel are willing to to enter into today um, are only the way they are. I think because Image made it possible for you to to retain your rights. But you know, that said, the way it works, you create something, you own the copyright in it. If you are not an employee, right? So, do you create you know a comic about a lawyer working out of an old brick house behind a restaurant. You write the script or you draw the art, you put the two together and you've got a a comic and you want to shop it around. At that point in time, you own the copyright in it as the creator. And when, when you go and take it to, to somebody else, take it to IDW or image or dark Knight or, or whomever and, and say, Hey, I want you to publish this. You own the copyright. Does it make sense to register that copyright before you do it? Yes, it does. And a re- copyright registration is is relatively cheap. It's relatively easy. Um, I certainly advise people to talk with lawyers about it, but you don't have to be a lawyer to register a copyright. And you know, with most of my clients, I you know they register their own copyrights. I go through and I I work with them. 
you know, if they'll let me, I'll try to work with them to teach them how to file a copyright, but they do it themselves. But a copyright registration doesn't change whether or not you have a copyright. The registration is a question of proof that you own that copyright. And if you have that copyright registration, it means that you can file a lawsuit in federal court for copyright infringement or over the rights in that copyright. And and, uh, if you don't have that registration, you might have trouble filing suit. Now, Jeff, I have have sat in any number of uh, uh, comic book conventions in – in uh, on panels, listening to panels where you know writers are talking and you know how to protect your, yourself, and this subject always comes up: the poor man's copyright. You know where you you know, put a copy of your manuscript inside an envelope, and mail it to yourself, and you file it away. Is that crap? <laughs> well, I just I had this very question uh, two weekends ago at a convention mm-hmm. uh, for when I was doing a panel. And uh, so I'm curious what answers you get when you say it or when when you hear the question, because the answer the answer I gave was it doesn't make one bit of difference. The uh, I have have observed uh, I wouldn't characterize them as comic professionals, uh, comic semi professionals who have said that that's what they do and that uh, they feel protected that way. But of course, when asked, you know, have you ever had to take that to court? None of them ever have. Yeah. what I what I explain to people is that what you're doing is you're creating some degree of proof that you created it and the date on which or the date by which it was created. Mm-hmm. A copyright registration, which by the way, I, uh, I think could be running right now around seventy five bucks. I haven't I haven't filed one lately. Right. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think around. 75 bucks, you can have your copyright registered uh, with the copyright office. So poor man's copyright, if you send that thing first-class mail, you're starting to tick up towards 75 bucks these days. (laughs) Um, But uh, what you do when you, you put it in the envelope and seal it and then get it postmarked by the United States Postal Service is you have a, a sealed container that is dated by a third party that contains an original work of authorship. Mm -hmm. And if at some later point in time you're in a dispute and you need to prove to somebody that you created it and that you created it by by a certain date, then you trot out this envelope. And you say you're holding a, a, a postmarked envelope there and it's got something inside it. And you say, see, I copyrighted this thing. I I was the creator. I did this way before you did it, and you stole it from me. And they look at the sealed envelope in your hand, and you said, all you have is a sealed envelope. Well, no, I'll prove, I'll prove it. Here, I'll open it up. And you open it up, and now that you've opened it up, it's no longer proof of anything because right. it's the seal's been broken. So hopefully you waited to open it up when you were on the witness stand. Right. But then you'll have the other side come in, and they'll put their expert up on the stand to say, while the postmark appears to be authentic, uh, there's no way I can tell whether or not this envelope was sealed prior to being mailed. Uh, so we can't tell at what point in time the contents that are inside this envelope were actually placed inside the envelope and sealed. And then you're going to put on an expert that says, ah, but I checked the remaining saliva contents <laughs> and I did a freeze dry analysis. Um, and then because we're talking comics, I used my super x-ray vision and I can tell that this thing was sealed prior to being mailed and that it was in fact sealed by this gentleman here or lady. And, and you get into this fight and then what the jury has to decide is, did you really put it in there? And the only good it really does is, if there's a dispute over who had this thing first. Right. And it still doesn't prove you created it. It proves that it was in your possession. And it may not even prove that if you didn't have a, a decent return address on it. So uh, it sounds to me like your recommendation is to go ahead and register your copyright. Register your copyright. 75 <laughs> bucks. Come on. Yeah. You know, I know the guys who are out there starving, uh, you know, yeah, they're giving up food for uh, their India Inc., but uh, but they're still buying lattes. 
<laughs> you know, just just forego a day and a half worth of caffeine, <laughs> and uh, and you can afford a copyright registration. Right. Well, and you know, seventy. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is not knowing. I you know, uh, I think a lot of folks just say, "Oh, copyright! I could never afford to do that." Then you hear, "Oh, seventy five bucks! Oh, that's not prohibitive." You know, that might be you know, like you said, cutting into your to your latte expenses. But you know, if you've you know, bought all your Bristol board and you paid for all your technical pins and uh, all that kind of fun stuff. And if you bought your Cintiq to do your digital artwork, you know, uh, you can probably swing $75 to copyright your your characters and your book. Yeah. And, you know, what, what really comes up is what's worth copywriting? Because mm-hmm. if you do a, a one-page treatment, you have a copyright in that single page. Right. If you do a 28-page issue... You have a copyright in that issue. If you're going to go out and shop something, you can always register the copyright later. Mm-hmm. But you know, how many of these things do you have that you're shopping around at any given time that you want to go ahead and, and register them? Because the artists I know are drawing all the time. Sure. You know, the back of a napkin, the side of a menu, you know, there are there are character creations that are that are scribbled everywhere somebody writes down the the idea for a uh, for a you know a, a 10 story arc or 10 issue story arc um on the back of a cocktail napkin there's a copyright in that you know what are you going to actually try to sell to somebody and what of those things are marketable such that you have to worry about registering your copyright right at that point in time right because you can register your copyright at different times. Now, it makes sense to register your copyright early. Your your recovery, your ability to get statutory damages, uh, if if your copyright is infringed at some point in time, can be limited, for example, if you have not registered the copyright within a certain time period uh, after publication. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, there are lots of uh, tricks out there to catch the unwary. And so the general advice is go ahead and, and register the copyright. Right. Um, that poor man's copyright won't do you any good on any of those other things that a copyright requ- is required for. Copyright right. registration, I should say, is required for. Because that's really the distinction is between the copyright and the registration of that copyright. Mm-hmm. The registration gives you certain rights, primarily rights that have to do with enforcing your copyright, protecting your stuff when things go wrong and getting money for it. Ownership of that copyright exists when you create. And that was that was really one of the great things about the revisions in, of the 1976 Copyright Act was it made it really that simple. If you're an author and if you create something um, – as long as it's not a work made for hire, you own it. And then it's just kind of incumbent on you to prove when you created it. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that gives you that, that ownership power over it. But again, if you want to protect all the revenue streams off that thing, um, you know, you want to you register your copyright early. Right. But even without that registration – you can register it later, and you can get some injunctive relief to prevent people from doing anything with with what you own and recover your your ownership control over that. Yeah. So, I mean, copyright covers a whole huge range of rights. We call it a bundle of rights. You know, a bundle of sticks, and you can take one out, and it's the ability to make a derivative of it. You know, you did issue one, you can make issue two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you did a, a comic book. Now you can make a video game or a movie. Um, those are derivative rights, reproduction rights to to simply, basically copy the thing. To mm-hmm. you know, you did issue one, you can make fifty thousand copies of it. Distribution rights, those are other rights, and all of those things are different types of rights that you can exercise in different ways. And that's what the the copyright registration law gets at is is how you can recover money for those various things. But the copyright itself, if you own it, you can control those rights and decide how you split them up. You can give one stick to one person, another stick to another person, or you can keep all the sticks to yourself. So in the uh, Siegel versus Warner Brothers or Warner, whoever they are now, uh, 
decision that was rendered over the summer. Uh, are you familiar with, with, with what came out over the summer? I am. Okay. I don't remember it all off the top of my head because I was in the process of changing law firms at the time. <laughs> uh, well, I, and I, one of the things, you know, Paul and I have talked about this at length. Do we understand correctly that the the court is lapsing the rights back to the Seagulls in a couple of years? Is Was, was that what, what that decision said? Some of the rights. Some of the rights. Do you recall which rights specifically? Well, it it's it's said well essentially it's the rights in the character right um because there's character copyright is is an interesting and in some ways bizarre thing because you cannot register a copyright in a character you can register a copyright in a comic book issue right or in an advertisement or a drawing but the courts have turned around and recognized that a character is copyrightable. And so a lot of that lawsuit was over – because uh, DC had had the copyright for some things, and uh, Siegel had created other, th- other pieces of work, other works, which Siegel had the copyright for. And the dispute was over really you know, the character, you know, uh, Superman. And what they said was for certain issues, and because the, you know I, I talked about how the the requirements for terminating the assignment are are complicated. Yes, you have to specify the works that that you're terminating, and you have to do it within a certain window of time. And Siegel's heirs got their notice of termination out for certain works in the appropriate time period, and that's what the court said. Okay. So the rights in those works were going to revert back. And then that leaves that leaves people to still fight over, okay, so does that mean that DC still has the copyright rights to X-ray vision? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or does, is, was that in – was X-ray vision introduced to Superman in one of the issues that's reverting back to the Seagulls? Um, s- and so what what happens – I'm going to try and paraphrase just from my own understanding. Uh, they get a certain – certain elements of the character that are deemed back to the Seagulls. Is that correct? And then they would be able to go and do with that what they wanted to do? In theory. Okay. I, I hate to be wish- – I, I don't have the uh, the opinion right in front of me. Sure. Um, but they get they get certain issues essentially. The copyright and certain works – back to them and then it is yet to be decided i believe uh or or there could still be a dispute i suppose they may, they may already have agreed amongst themselves but uh there may still be some dispute as to which aspects of the character are unique to those issues mm-hmm. and which aspects of the character are unique to issues that dc owns the copyright in i see does that make sense it does it does and so, and i like i said I, my my recollection of that opinion is not great and there were a number of opinions in that twin set of cases yes uh that were coming out you know once a year once every six months and and some of those decisions and the, and the decisions between superboy and superman kind of run together in my head right now so uh but but i think i've generally got that that correct uh, as I recall, the it was only certain issues. It was it was a, quite a number of them, but it was only right. certain issues that uh, that the Seagulls had exercised the termination of assignment rights in. And you know, I, 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 as I recall, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know, like I said, Paul and I talked about this uh, quite a bit. The, some of the the elements that were that were deemed back to the Seagulls were you know like super jumping, but that flight hadn't been introduced to the character. And that you know he was a uh, uh, you know rocketed from the dialing uh, he was an outer space alien or something like that. So it was just little pieces, little snatches and grabs of the character, but certainly not the Superman that we know today. Right, and 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 that is that is I believe what what happened. I just can't remember exactly which ones were which, and certainly there was the dispute over flight versus jumping. Right. Um, 
And uh, and like you said, whether he was a, an outer space alien, whether that had been established down in writing at that point in time, yeah, um, or not. But uh, yeah, it, and, it, it certainly sounds like there's a there's a possible scenario, and you know, knowing that all of this is still unraveling in the courts as we speak. But uh, you know, it certainly sounds like there's this scenario where you could see a Superman book published at another company. Yeah. 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 No, that that could certainly happen. And you see it happening in a, in a slightly different way with, you know, the example that I that I love to use is uh, is the Wizard of Oz. Uh huh. I think it was three years ago or thereabouts. Maybe it was four. the Frank Baum original novel the wizard of oz goes into the public domain right so now all of a sudden everybody can can base derivative works create new creations based upon those characters do a new comic book of the wizard of oz and everybody and their brother was coming out with one but frank Baum had licensed his work to i think it was mgm Mm-hmm. For the movie The Wizard of Oz, the movie The Wizard of Oz with Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow, those are all characters in in the original book, but is a very different work from the Frank Baum original. It is a cheerier, less dark version, which if you were a young child when you first saw those flying monkeys, you have a hard time believing. <laughs> but uh, but the Frank Baum version was was darker. Mm-hmm. And so when Frank Baum's version goes into the public domain, MGM still owns the copyright in the movie. So if you want to take his work and go off and do something with it, you can only do with uh, use stuff that was originally in his book. If it first appeared in the movie, MGM still has the copyright in that particular original element. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to kind of walk that walk that line. And as a result, you end up with, you know, folks going out there and testing the waters to see what they can do. And when you went to Comic-Con in San Diego three years ago, every table, it seemed like, had something Wizard of Oz. Uh, Todd had come out with a Twisted Land of Oz. Um, now he's getting ready to come out with a uh, with a new Wizard of Oz uh, movie. So, uh, but But that's an example where, you know, part of the rights can be tied up in one place and that rights can be available to go and do something else. So like an Alice in Wonderland would be a similar situation, I would imagine. You know, Alan Moore, that, that genius that he is, has done an amazing job of taking public domain stuff and recasting it. And so, you know, the, the, the mainstream one that he did was obviously League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and you, you see a lot of that, mm-hmm. uh, where he took... Uh, you know, characters who had fallen into the public domain and recasts them and uses them. But he did the same thing with Alice in Wonderland in his in his collaboration with his now wife when they came out with uh, The Lost Girls. And it's a trilogy of Alice in Wonderland, Dorothy, and uh, Wendy from Peter Pan. Um, it's also very, very different from those books but, <laughs> yeah that's yeah, quite a bit a little bit <laughs> well, uh, but, but, but yeah uh alice in wonderland is, is one of those and when you when you look at the creative way that that alan moore can use those works and change them around and create something that's more than what the original was you've got to look at it and say We've got a pretty good copyright system in this country and abroad that allows a creator to control their creation for a period of time so that they can generate money and that there's incentive for creativity, but that at the same time doesn't lock that that original up in a vault and store it away so that nobody else can take that idea and that original art and be inspired by it and take it and do something that that contributes and adds to the rest of society. Um, and, yeah, we can do it with fair use and we can make parodies and things like that. But at some point in time, you really just want this stuff freed up. Right. Uh, but you've got to have a period of time when you can – you can make some money off this. Otherwise, we you know talk about starving artists. We wouldn't have any artists because mm-hmm. 
they they literally would all be dead. Is there a way like, you know, uh, is there a way for a family, you know, after the author dies and you're counting down that period, is there a way to protect that copyright and keep it in the family without it going to public domain? Or is that just a, a hardcore, you know, requirement of the law that at some point it will roll into public domain? Well, as with the second question, I have an easy answer. It will eventually go into public domain, maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, that is a hard I'm fast answer. I'm giving you all kinds of qualified answers. It's, it's the Mickey Mouse rule, right. right? The time period that, at least in the United States, and different countries have, have different periods before something rolls into the public domain. But, you know, in the United States, it's controlled by statute, and the copyright in something – exists for a fixed period of time after the death of the author unless the author is a company that can't die right. in which case it's for a fixed period of time after the the creation or the first publication i i always go back and you know it's it's like the termination thing i always go back and check the statute before i give anybody in a any advice as to whether or not they can go ahead and and start using somebody else's creation but, uh, you know, in the United States, that time period seems to be dictated by when the copyright in Mickey Mouse is going to expire. And every time Disney's, you know, Steamboat Willie is about ready to go into the public domain, um, you know, Congress extends <laughs> the, the length of a copyright. But I think most people think that now, uh, it's gone on about long enough, and there's not going to be another extension of that. And, uh, and eventually, everything goes into the public domain. Could be, I think it might be like 75 years after the uh, the death of the person. Right. Um, I've got it over here somewhere, but you know, so a a copyright can last a good long time, and it could go through a couple of sets of heirs before before that copyright expires and the work becomes public domain. So nothing's forever is what you're saying. Nothing is forever. <laughs> except for diamonds. So there you go. So uh we had we uh had talked about the Gaiman versus McFarlane case earlier and we were talking about how it's kind of in an accounting uh mode right now. Uh what's the next step on that one? Good question. <laughs> Sorry, it's 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 difficult to talk about ongoing sure. litigation that you're involved in. <laughs> where where you know I can talk about you know Siegel and sure and and Time Warner all I want because I don't represent a party. Sure, I, I don't want to misstep the bounds, but uh, you know it's it's public record that uh, that Todd McFarland Productions filed for bankruptcy a number of years back as the result of. Uh, of uh, outstanding judgments against him, the Gaiman against the company, Gaiman being one, but the but the uh, the largest uh, outstanding judgment at the time was over a lawsuit involving the hockey player Tony Twist, yeah, and the use of the name Twist. So anyway, it went into bankruptcy, and uh, the the company as a re- as a result, litigation gets stayed, and so the the Gaiman lawsuit is under the auspices of the original court in Madison, Wisconsin, and under the bankruptcy court down in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it's got to go through a, a couple of stages in order and, and a couple of rulings from the judges in order for that accounting to go forward. I see. So it's, it's I, mean, I guess most people would call it kind of stalled out right now. Sure. But that doesn't mean that tomorrow it couldn't, you know, be cruising along again. Now, I don't know if you are... Uh familiar with uh it's an article we wrote earlier uh today on on our blog uh which for when people are listening to this about a week ago <laughs> um it, the lawsuit or the cease and desist that monster energy drink sent to uh uh, uh the rock art brewery uh concerning their vermonster beer are you familiar with that at all you know what i uh i don't know that one i i was kind of tied up lately and i'm not as up to date i see the uh i just scrolled down through this and i see your uh your piece here and i can see the rock art brewery mm-hmm. yeah um, and essentially as i understand it the the uh folks that that make the monster energy drink were uh citing copyright confusion or branding confusion and send a cease and desist to their vermonster 
And, you know, I, I think the question that, you know, we certainly asked on the blog today and, and that I think a lot of people are asking is how in the world can someone c- confuse the Monster Energy drink that certainly has a very different uh, brand and a very different container than, you know, this, uh, this beer. And it certainly seems a lot like the large corporation bullying somebody who can't afford the legal fees. Right. Um, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, uh, and you were, you were talking about branding confusion. You threw in the term copyright confusion and it's, you've got on your blog, you've got it right. It's, it's trademark confusion. Ah, thank you. Um, which, which is, is like branding and, and it's an issue. Copyright is, is a monopoly in a, in a specific expression. Mm-hmm. Trademark is uh, not so much a monopoly. Other people can use the same mark. The question is, will consumers be confused? And so it gives you broader protection than simply what is down there as your mark. So a trademark can get broader protection. If you've got a, a trademark design, it may get broader protection than a copyright in the same design would get. Mm-hmm. And and the question they ask is whether or not somebody would be confused. And you look at that and you see the Vermonster and you say, there's no way anybody's going to be confused with respect to that, you know, you look at a lot of different things about how it's how it's used and and the context in which it comes up. You, you look at the fact that uh, they're both used on beverage items, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that Monster is now you know used and probably being marketed in bars as part of you know cocktails, and so beer is being marketed. So they're being sold through the same channels of distribution, mm-hmm. and then is is it always presented, you know, with the design mark, or sometimes do they say the Vermonster and Monster? Mm-hmm. And so, if do you hear it on radio, and is there a likelihood of confusion on radio between the Vermonster and Monster, or what if you have it just in writing with a typeface on an order form that goes out to a bar who needs to, you know, select what they're doing? And what they what you know you, get, you end up getting into is this very fact intensive investigation as to whether or not people would actually be confused, uh, or or the the actual test is whether or not people would are likely to be confused. It's called likelihood of confusion test. And um, often brands will uh, will trot out surveys where they will test consumers to see whether or not confusion exists. And, uh, and we do a lot of a lot of trademark litigation. You know, would I be confused looking at these? I I, I like to think of myself as a sophisticated beer consumer. Um, I will. Uh, I know when I'm drinking different beer. Right. At least up to a certain point in the evening. <laughs> there's a um, there's a ratio but, of consumption there that you have to take into consideration. Yes, you yeah. do. <laughs> and you know what? That would be an interesting issue to raise. Uh, in a lawsuit that uh, you have to distinguish the consumers before 9 p.m. and the consumers after 9 p.m. <laughs> I like um, it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, is it, you know, it, are people likely to be confused? I don't know. This is one of those that I would be curious to see what, what survey results would be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly, you know, first blush, there seems to be a pretty big difference. Right. Uh Certainly, when you factor in design and typeface, uh, they they did use the same colors, and it doesn't have to be a confusion that it is the same product. It's enough that it's confusion as to whether or not it, it has to do with the source of origin for the goods or services. So, would consumers be confused as to whether or not there's a relationship between the company that makes Monster the energy drink and the Vermonster? the beer. And when they use this, you know, they both use green. I don't know, maybe. Well, you know, as a, as a layman, that seems kind of a reach to me, but, uh, I, I certainly see the, see the point you're making. Um, but you know, it, it what's what I, I guess where I really kind of have a problem with it is that, you know, monster is a word that's, you know, used in the language, you know, versus, uh, you know, Twizzler versus Ver Twizzler. You know what I'm saying? So, sure. so it's not a manufactured word that they're using. They're taking a word out of general context and you know, applying a, a trademark to it. Well, in, in courts recognize that difference. 
Twizzler would likely be considered arbitrary and therefore get a wide, it's considered, and an arbitrary mark is considered a strong mark and gets lots of protection. Right. Uh, a, a descriptive mark gets very little protection. You know, if, if you call something light beer, well, that's probably generic and it doesn't get any protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miller Light gets a little bit of protection because it's spelled L-I-T-E. Mm-hmm as opposed to L-I-G-H-T, right. okay? So it gets more protection that way. And it's on this sliding scale. And in between, there are suggestive marks that, uh, that might imply something about the product or suggest what the type of product is. Um, and, uh, and Monster might very well be considered an arbitrary mark because y- while it exists as a... Uh, as a word, it certainly is not descriptive or even suggestive of a beverage. Mm-hmm. So when you apply monster to a beverage, now you're using something in a very, very different way. And, uh, and, and if you're the first person to use it in connection with a beverage, then maybe, maybe so. Maybe you should get a, a fairly strong protection there. Uh, and actually, I, I probably misspoke because Twizzler would likely be um, not just arbitrary, but fanciful, because the the marks that get the most protection are fanciful or coined, mm-hmm. and pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are famous for coming up with all the great fanciful <laughs> or coined marks. Right, Viagra right. sounds yeah. good. You know, they went through all kinds of testing, I'm sure, to come up with something that would have the right commercial impression for people looking to have a rock hard penis. Um, <laughs> but uh, our but first penis comment of that word that that exists separately and apart from that trademark. So it gets all kinds of strong protection. Right. Um, and, and Twizzler would get strong protection for being perhaps fanciful or coined. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have the argument, well, Twizzler is like Twister and there are twists on the licorice but i think you kind of end up losing that mm-hmm. monster is is you know there's nothing about the word monster that makes me think beer right so in that regard if you're the first person that gets to it then shouldn't you you know and you get people to recognize yours with respect to beverages you know shouldn't you be able to use it on beverages and keep other people from doing it in a way that's going to confuse them mm-hmm. there are other words you could use why is why does he have to use that Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting thing, and uh, I generally uh, side with, with the guys who brew beer. <laughs> As do we at ideologyofmadness.com. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, Jeff, are you still blogging? We are temporarily out of the blog, but we are going to be blogging again very soon. I will say that because th- the, uh, the blog was, was – <coughs> pardon me hosted uh through the relationship with my prior firm mm-hmm. and the guy who is keeping that blog up is a guy named David Ryan who does some fantastic posts on on copyright and trademark issues uh-huh. he he doesn't quite keep it up to speed on all the really cool comic issues that I like to like to do mm-hmm. but there is still good blog content coming out on owners borrowers and thieves uh, which is is my old blog. My new partner and I, or my my partner in our new venture and I, are going to fire up our uh, our new blog now. And being out from the uh, the big firm Yoke, mm-hmm. we're going to uh, uh, probably fire up Twitter and uh, and uh, some some other social media as well. Oh, excellent! But the big thing we're looking forward to do is getting back to blogging and having a lot of freedom to just kind of ramble on like I'm doing now about things I like. Excellent. Well, when you guys are ready to roll out the new blog and Twitter and whatnot, be sure and drop us a note. Uh, we'll uh, promote it on the on the website. Absolutely. I'm hoping to start it up soon so that I can uh, mention uh, this interview about and you guys. Excellent. Well, Paul, did you have any additional questions for Jeff? No, I'm good. You know, thank you so much for uh, for sitting with us today. We had a. I think this was very informative. Paul was taking lots of notes. <laughs> that, that's code for boring as hell. <laughs> no, no. Actually, I, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't taking. I mean, yeah, I was taking notes. 
<laughs> Jeff, is there anything else uh, you'd like to share with our listeners tonight? No, I'm just excited that uh, about what you guys are doing and uh, the fact that that we're making such progress with uh, casting and and uh, getting media out and distributed. And you've got, you know, looking here at your side, you've got quite a nice product. Uh, did I hear correctly? You guys just won an award recently. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that was uh, the the Audi Award awarded to us by our uh, network, Spooky Outhouse Productions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we I, we uh, I, I forget the specifics on the award. It was something about uh, you know documenting uh, uh, Adam Pania's life in excruciating detail. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad to hear you're getting the recognition that you may or may not deserve. <laughs> the long story short, yes, we are the award-winning website. That's right. That's right. of madness. <laughs> <laughs> that's hysterical. All right, well, Jeff. Well, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Uh, uh, I'd like to have you back again sometime soon uh, when we, you know, have more, uh, you know, comic law to discuss. That would be great. And you know, I'm. I'm looking at your blog, and I'll have to put it into my RSS feed so I can uh, stay current on it because uh, you throw up a lot of stuff that makes me think, and I'll have to have to leave a comment here or there for you. I think that is the first time anybody has said, Paul, that we make them think. <laughs> so excellent. All right. All right. Well, excellent, Jeff. Thanks a bunch. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.